morning and welcome to Rising. We've got an unusually important show today, right? A very Ryan-centric show. Budget. Getting into the budget. Excellent. Our Rising panel will discuss President Biden's proposed budget for 2023, specifically how much money is set aside for defense and police. All of it. All of it. Yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> Igor Gotkin is with us to discuss the latest on Ukraine. Kim Iverson, of course, will join us later as well. But first, we want to give you an overview of Biden's budget before we get into the specifics with the panel. Yesterday, Biden unveiled his $5.8 trillion spending plan to fund the government in 2023. The budget does not request money for Build Back Better and instead includes a deficit-neutral reserve fund for a future agreement between the administration and Congress. However, the budget omits measures to offset the cost of any future Build Back Better legislation. As far as the Pentagon's budget goes, Biden proposed an $813 billion Pentagon budget, marking a $31 billion increase from last year's budget. No surprises there. For context, Trump's highest Pentagon budget was $738 billion in 2020. Yeah, not sure what that is. 2020. Marking a $75 billion increase by the Biden administration. Here's Biden yesterday on the proposal. Compared to 2020, we're reducing the size of the deficit relative to our economy by almost two-thirds, reducing inflationary pressures, and making real headway cleaning up the fiscal mess I inherited. After my president's, my, my, excuse me, my predecessor's fiscal mismanagement, we were reducing the Trump deficits and returning our fiscal house to order. All right, Ryan, go off, King. This is your thing. Tell I'm just, us. I'm just so proud of our military. <laughs> you know, after, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, People talked about how that was costing us $300 million a day. And as a result, one less war to wage that there was going to be a cut to the military budget. The military said no. No. In fact, we need a lot more money. Of course. More. That makes sense. And immediately after they withdrew from Afghanistan, if you remember, they went right back to Congress and said, we need a supplemental for extra. And instead of saying... That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Go away. Congress like, oh, here's, here's another $20, $30 billion. Get you, th- get you through the weekend. Now we've got a war in Ukraine. Right. Uh, we have, Though we're not technically, not technically at war involved, with but Russia, we're, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. We're pumping it full of weapons. Sure. That's expensive. Which is also funny that, that you spend $800 plus billion and you don't get anything with that. Like every war is extra. Mm-hmm. On top of that, and there's saber rattling in you know, China, and so you know you've got to you got to deny them access to these different waters, and so it is it is truly amazing the way in which the military budget just continues to go up, 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 and up. People talked about there being a peace dividend after the Cold War ended. I don't know if you remember those heady heady days, like oh the Cold we were spending all this money to defeat the Soviet Union, Soviet Union is defeated. Now we can spend that money somewhere else. It's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, we don't have to do that because one of the reasons we were doing social spending at all uh, was to kind of counteract the Soviet system. Right. Now there's no system to have to counteract. Yeah, so. no matter what happens, the interests within the government always ask for more money. Budgets rarely get slashed or cut. This is very frustrating to those of us of a small enough to drown it in the bathtub philosophy <laughs> of how big the government should be and how much money it should spend. So not really, not really surprising. But, uh, but, I, but Biden was you know, more committed 
he was the one who did the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So he could, if he wanted to, make an intellectual argument that we are going to prioritize spending elsewhere in the wake of this once-in-a-century horrific pandemic yeah. that has, you know, crippled our society. You know, we, we, can, we, can designate, we can spend money on, on peace and prosperity rather than on the military, but no, he didn't do that. Right, the budget includes, I think Aida Chavez uh, posted this detail, budget includes, I think, $3 billion for clean energy and $800 plus billion dollars for what? Like, for, like, for what? Like, what, what exactly are we going right. to war against? I mean, the- Millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute. <laughs> That's right. There you go. It's the old- uh, Yep, there you world. go. Uh, and now, at least there's the billionaire's tax, you know, I, it, and it, it, it's not obviously going to be, uh, come law, uh, no. but it has apparently really gotten under the skin of, the, of a handful of the 700 billionaires that it would hit. And so if all of our governing now is just kind of emotional and just owning our enemies, at least putting the billionaire tax in the budget caused a tiny bit of discomfort for some very, very rich people for a couple of minutes during the day. Wow. And, and we can count that as a, as a big win. Well, not so. we, but you, I, I, I see. You probably enjoy their tears a little uh, bit. They have some, there's some bad things about them, sure. There you go. Sure. All right, so Biden's budget plans don't include more money for COVID, however. The administration's coronavirus relief fund has covered as many as 31.2 million uninsured Americans for reimbursement, testing, and treatment. The agency has also said that it will run out of funds for vaccine claims in two weeks. So uninsured patients will now be charged up to $195 for a COVID test, according to The Hill. One of the country's largest testing providers, Quest Diagnostics, told ABC that patients will be billed $125 per PCR test if they are not on Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. Meanwhile, drugstore chains like CVS and Walgreens are currently in limbo. So even if you're on private insurance, you should still prepare to pay for tests, treatments, and vaccines once the federal money runs dry. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, private insurers will establish new, new contracts and prices to purchase supplies, which could lead to higher costs and premiums for employers and individuals, adding that insurers may have a hard time competing with other countries for vaccines. Hmm. And that's interesting because, right, the, the market is actually a global one between countries who are, who are putting in orders for tens of millions. And I guess we have some pretty big insurance companies, but how many vaccines are left to dole out at this point? And, and I guess it up, upends whatever booster program. But the government should actually take advantage of this and be like, look, two weeks. You got two weeks to get a vaccine for free. After that, it's going to cost you $200. <laughs> right. Like there's an actual clock. Like you want a free shot? Take, get it now. If, if, you, uh, if you don't get it by now, it's $195. If you haven't gotten it by but. My only, my hesitation here, if you haven't gotten it by now, what are you doing? Like, or you're just someone who's not going to get it. But who, who's the person who's like, oh, you, I, I'd have to pay for it next week if I, if I well, get it then. So is, I guess is, I'll go there. This is America. Money talks. So they're like, oh, it's $195. That must be good. Savings. Yeah. Like, I, I forget uh, who, who on the right said it, but she was like, it can't be good if it's free. And that, there is, like, an ethos about that in the United States. So, hey, get what you pay for. It's going to be 200 bucks. Must be, must be good. I, I, and I have to say, I, I'm not, I don't care so much that we're not going to subsidize the tests anymore. Uh, but we should just totally 
deregulate the test, let everyone come up, if they want to come up with tests, we should have done that from the beginning, and we would drop the price of them. I don't know that we need to do some, or the sending tests, to, how stupid does that plan even sound? <laughs> the, the old, remember, we're going to ship you three, three free tests per how, however many it was. Everybody's got one now, right? <laughs> Well, at least they're there. They don't work necessarily. <laughs> they're not going to work, but yeah. <laughs> or the next wave anyway. Yeah. All right, we'll tell you what's on our radars up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, I am not done talking about the slap. You know what I'm talking about, of course. On Sunday night at the Oscars, Chris Rock made a dumb joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, which prompted her husband Will Smith to walk up on stage and slap him across the face. Watch here. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So afterward, Chris Rock tried to play it cool, but Will Smith yelled at him for saying his wife's name out of his effing mouth. So this was a genuine moment of aggression between the two, not something that was planned or scripted as some had suspected. Smith really did march up there and slap Rock because his wife, who has alopecia, didn't appreciate the joke about losing her hair. If that was what the joke was about her hair rather than her wardrobe. It's not totally clear, but who cares? Now in the year 2022, we are unaccustomed to witnessing notable public figures engaging in spontaneous acts of violence, and thus the slap is all anyone can talk about. My colleague at Reason, Eric Baim, had one take. He argues that Rock handled himself pretty well, all things considered. He didn't further escalate the matter, nor did he apologize, nor did he lose his composure, and that's basically the right way to handle this, so I agree with the take. But this is definitely a two-take event, at least. So additionally, I would like to note that Will Smith has reminded everyone precisely why it is so dangerous to erode the critical post-enlightenment distinction between words and actions. This distinction was a social innovation that made violence less necessary and thus less common. Woke liberals who are trying to reassert the equivalence between speech and violence are perhaps inadvertently hearkening back to a more barbaric time. So for most of human history, people did, in fact, live their truth. Speech was violence, and anyone who said something offensive could invite reprisal. People who offended their neighbors would engage in blood feuds for generations. People who offended the political authorities could be dismembered. People who offended the religious authorities could be burned to death. Speech was not viewed as some special separate category of behavior. Impugning another person's reputation could absolutely be considered a provocative act, the same as striking him in the face. Letting people kill each other every time they get upset about something is actually not a very good way to run a society. So thankfully, over the past 300 years, many advanced civilizations have evolved cultural norms that delineate words and actions. It's not a universal rule, of course. People do still come to blows after quarreling, though the fact that they can be arrested for such conduct tends to discourage it. Over time, it has become less and less common to encounter reciprocal violence outside of a few exceptional scenarios. Prisons, which contain a disproportionate number of antisocial people. Schools, where kids are still learning how to socialize. And sometimes bars, where alcohol lowers inhibitions. Now on Twitter, Bridget Fetessy, a friend of mine, says that Smith's slap shows that, quote, we've reached the inevitable conclusion of words are violence. The Atlantic's Elizabeth Brunig pushed back, saying, well, there were historical periods in which that was like a legitimate legal reason to do violence against someone, lol. 
So Brunig and Fedesi are actually both right. People attacking each other is what results from a norm of words are violence. And we know this because it was the norm for most of human history. That's not so much the case now, but it always could be again. It's why a healthy level of contempt for Smith's behavior is the right attitude. Don't hit people, even if you dislike what they say. In other words, everyone should find themselves in that lower right quadrant. That's where I am. And I want to further highlight two more takes, one good and one bad. Here's friend of the show, Marianne Williamson, making a lot of sense. She tweets, having run for president, I can honestly say that if the men in my life had hit every comedian who belittled me, made fun of me, and insulted my honor, there might not be any comedians left. And here's a New York State assembly person who thinks literally everything is violence. So that's helpful. And that tweet was deleted, but I screenshotted it, so we like, still got to Like many other tweets, interestingly. Yeah. About it was you know, a many a ton of takes were taken down. Yeah. People think maybe they're I don't know, I hope people were thinking through their reactions and coming to a, a wiser, more enlightened place. A, a place where speech should not invite violent attack. And look, I get it. It was not it was not the most striking example of violence we've ever seen. It was a slap. He like he didn't nearly kill him or so. I saw that he could have killed him. Probably not very likely. It's pretty unlikely. They're like, well, what if it was Betty White? Okay, if it was Betty White, I guess sure, but <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't Betty Probably, White. Hopefully, he would have you know restrained himself. If it was if it was Betty White, but uh, and now Will Smith has apologized. Uh, right. Kind of a. I don't know, rambling apology. Violence in all its forms is poisonous and destructive. My behavior was unacceptable, inexcusable. Jokes at my expense are part of the job, but a joke about Jada's medical condition was too much for me, and I reacted emotionally. I would like to publicly apologize to you, Chris. was out of line. I was wrong. I am embarrassed, and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. And he also apologizes to the Academy, which is reviewing the incident. And he says he's a work in progress, I think, at the end, something like that. Yeah, it's I'm a good, work in good. progress. As a society, we're a work in progress, and we've got to work to progress past yeah. this right. kind of thing. Because like you said, this, this, was, yeah. per, this was common. This, this was It was the norm. Central That's how most right. people lived. If you, the, the whole, if you offend me, I will kill you. Yeah. That's most people's experience yeah. until, like, like the 1700s. And I'm, uh, in my radar, soon I'm going to talk about the history of dueling, which was very central, much, very to, much. central to this, this code of honor. But I think people should also ask themselves how they would feel about this situation if his slap had landed, let's say his hand hit a particular part of his jaw, and it knocks him out, and you watched Chris Rock crumple to the ground in front of you. Like, now are you entertained? Yeah. Because like yeah. the force with which he swung his hand could have knocked him out. Yeah. Now it's not, I don't think he was going to die, but it could have knocked him out. We get a false, imp- you're right, we get a false impression from so many movies and TV shows where people like beat the crap out of each right. other and then yes. walk off just fine. I, uh, one of my favorite television shows is, is Lost, and I'm actually rewatching mm-hmm. it right now. Um, and it, but, but it's funny because every time they just want to knock somebody out, they, they hit them in the back of the head with a rifle and that shit. And then they just go, they take a little pleasant Rich. little nap. They do right. it to the pregnant lady. She just goes to sleep. She wakes up a few hours later. She's fine. No, if you hit someone in the head with, with a gun or any kind of blunt object, they might die. Especially in the back of the head. They might like, have horrible brain yeah. damage or they might die. Uh, so we get this false impression mm-hmm. from watch from from TV that oh yeah people just walk if you could you know really right, beat right. people up yes. and they're fine especially with no, the you butt hit of the somebody rifle. in the I had a, I had a cousin who was in a, a, a bar fight when he was a, a, a in high school and like can't hear in one ear <laughs> yeah. he got a hit in the ear yes. like that's it 
One right. punch can do it. Yes, and certainly the, his palm. Yeah. If had, if it had hit his ear. Yeah. Now you say, well, he didn't hit his ear because you know he trained as Muhammad Ali, so you know. If but if, is that your license that you're giving to people that you that you know that they're perfectly going to time this so that it it hurts a lot but it doesn't knock him out? It's yeah. And, and I think we would have understood it much more viscerally as wrong right. if, if you'd have watched him crumple before your eyes. Right. Like, oh, it would be universal condemnation. Yeah. Glad it didn't come to that, but uh, it, it's really a, it's important not to. And I was you know, chiding a little bit of the woke liberal type people who are like, no, words are violence. No, let's not make words violence. Words should not be violence. Right. Words should be words. Violence right. is something it was, a, it, was, it's a, it was a great advance to get to a mm-hmm. place where people could speak to each other even harshly and it not result in, in people getting killed. Yeah. And also the, the woke people standing up for chivalry, very weird. they have not really thought that through very, very much. Very weird. Yeah. All right, well, we'll discuss this more yeah. to follow. Looking forward to your radar next. Ryan, what's on your radar? So Abraham Lincoln was dogged throughout his career by an unseemly moment that almost cost him his life. So it was 1842, and Illinois, under Democratic control then, announced it would no longer accept state currency to pay debts. There was no national currency yet, and the decision to accept nothing but silver and gold made the state's paper money basically worthless. Lincoln, then a 33-year-old state legislator, never passed up an opportunity to attack Democrats, and he lit into the Democratic state auditor, James Shields, a close ally of state kingpin Stephen Douglas, over the decision. But as was strangely common at the time, Lincoln did it under a pen name, Rebecca, this time, and played off of drunken Irish stereotypes, mocking him as well as a womanizer, writing, quote, his very features in the ecstatic agony of his soul spoke audibly and distinctly, dear girls, it is distressing, but I cannot marry you all. Too well I know how much you suffer, but do, do remember, it is not my fault that I am so handsome and so interesting. Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd, penned a poem under the same name, joking that Shields and, quote, Rebecca had gotten married, quote, Ye Jews, harps awake, the auditors won, Rebecca and the widow has gained Aaron's son. That was a poem that was then published in the local paper. It was all too much for the auditor, and he demanded his sullied honor be satisfied by a duel. So Lincoln chose swords, thinking his length would guarantee him a win, not knowing his opponent was actually a master swordsman. Now, fortunately for Lincoln, a friend of Mary Todd's, the local congressman, arrived in time to mediate the dispute, and the swords were sheathed. Now, the two had met in front of a crowd of hundreds on a sandbar in the Mississippi known as Bloody Island since Senator Thomas Hart Benton had killed a political opponent in a duel there in 1817. The island was chosen because it was not part of either Illinois or Missouri, both of which had banned dueling. So the dueling ban was progress. It was considered a barbaric relic of the honor culture of the Middle Ages and its aristocracy. The code of honor was slowly being rooted out of American political culture. It did not go quietly. And a casual look at American culture over the past several years suggests it's now surging back. Now, the fight against dueling was waged by social justice advocates who pushed the country forward in a number of battles, some of them just and righteous, abolition and universal suffrage, and some of them, I'm thinking of the temperance movement and prohibition here, righteous, but a little bit muddled. Now, one of the leading abolitionists of the time was former president-turned-representative John Quincy Adams, 
who in 1838 was serving in Congress when two members, a Kentucky Whig and a Maine Democrat, dueled over a trivial insult that didn't even involve either of them directly. The first two shots missed and they declared it over, but Representative Henry Wise, a strident pro-slavery congressman, insisted on a second round. Honor bound, the congressman agreed, and the gentleman from Maine was killed. In the uproar that followed, Adams introduced and passed a bill to ban dueling in D.C. Author Sidney Blumenthal, in his book A Self-Made Man, which is a portrait of Lincoln from 1809 to 1849, writes that Adams, quote, considered dueling its code and the Southern concept of honor nothing but an appendage of slavery. For Adams and other Northerners, it was a relic of the worst elements of the aristocracy, false virtue to mask real evil. And it was the antithesis of the American spirit, which they saw as linking virtue to freedom, hard work, and success. So three years later on the House floor, Adams attacked Wise and linked his support of slavery to his backing of nullification and dueling. Adams wrote in his diary that night, quote, at the close of his reply, his gang of duelists clapped their hands and the gallery hissed. So the local Whig papers excoriated Lincoln for his barbaric display, even though it was called off, with one paper dubbing it, quote, the calmest most deliberate and malicious species of murder, a relic of the most cruel barbarism that ever disgraced the darkest periods of the world, and one which every principle of religion, virtue, and good order loudly demands should be put a stop to. Now, 19th century politics, even excepting for the Civil War, were extraordinarily violent in comparison to today. Honor culture insisted that a slight to one's honor or to the honor of a lady could only be satisfied by an expression of violence. And that expression of violence then validated the man's position on the hierarchy, far more than any meritocratic calculus may have done. Cultures of honor differ in characteristics from rural, rural Ireland to Afghanistan to the antebellum South, but all revolve around the idea that violence is an honorable solution to a social problem or provocation. Not, not all slights were met with organized violence. In The Field of Blood, A History of Violence in Congress, Joanne Freeman documents dozens of 19th century congressional canings, pistol whippings, knifings, and fistfights. Public displays of violence accelerated into the Civil War and also brought the war to a head faster. In 1856, abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner was caned to within an inch of his life by a Charleston, South Carolina congressman, Preston Brooks, who said Sumner had besmirched the honor of his relative and of the South. To escape censure, he resigned, but then ran in the next special election and won in a landslide. In 1858, a pro-slavery judge in California challenged an anti-slavery Democratic senator, David Broderick, to a duel. Broderick's pistol was rigged with a hair trigger, and it fired as soon as he picked it up, so that counted as his shot. The judge then took his time and aimed squarely at his chest, murdering him. About 30 years later, the same judge actually tried to kill a Supreme Court justice and was himself killed by U.S. Marshals. Now, two years before that killing, a reporter ended the career of a congressman by exposing an affair. The congressman became a lobbyist, as they do, and the two saw each other regularly in the Capitol, and the former congressman would tweak his nose or pull on his ear whenever he saw him. One day, the reporter came armed to the Capitol, confronted him on the stairs just off the House floor, and shot him dead. Bloodstains still mark that stairwell. The dueling and the need to prove one's honor violently there's a relic of the aristocratic honor culture, and it cut against the idea of meritocracy. So duels finally fell out of favor as modernity set in. Where the meritocracy took hold, honor culture was slowly eradicated. Violence became an unnecessary way to prove merit, and indeed it proved the opposite. 
But in places that haven't seen that meritocracy take hold, for instance, poor and working class areas where no amount of merit is going to get you out, honor culture has persisted with more strength than in the suburban homes of the well-educated. The way to know which side of the line your neighborhood is on depends on whether there are universally understood fighting words or not. Hey, you, let's fight. Them's fighting words. <laughs> Yet we're now seeing honor culture return to cultural spaces that had once been colonized by meritocracy. Now, why Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars is beside the point. What matters is that Smith found many of his most vociferous defenders among the well-educated demographic that in a previous political era would have been leading the fight against dueling. One of the great successes of the movement against dueling in honor culture was to remove speech from the terrain of violence. Words, even vicious, insulting ones, could be exchanged without either party feeling it necessary to honor themselves by responding violently. But now words are said to be violence themselves and therefore can justifiably be met with violence. The collapse of support for free speech and the willingness of so many progressives to support violence in the defense of honor suggests perhaps that the triumph of meritocracy was never real, that it merely replaced aristocratic honor with a temporary new mode of sorting power. And now that the sorting is so transparently at odds with actual merit, with power concentrated among the very rich and their children, the culture is reverting back to honor as a more useful store of social value. Say what you want, at least it's an ethos. Although it doesn't apply to everybody, the Illinois press later revealed, according to Blumenthal, that Mary Todd had been the author of the most offending lines of poetry. Quote, Miss M.T. wrote them in the parlor of her friend, Miss J.J., for fun, the Telegraph reported. Quote, no challenge will be sent in this case, the author being a female. The code does not require it. No lady duels. No lady duels. Isn't that nice? How honorable. Nice for them, yeah. yeah. Although I, now that gets into some weird, given our new understandings of gender and who you can just be what gender you say you are. But uh, Right, so I guess in our, in our new honor culture. That would not be very honorable, right. I guess, to escape a duel by saying I now identify as a woman. Right, no, that would, that would probably, <laughs> probably right. be like losing the duel, yeah. But so is this really where we want to head? And, no. And maybe we don't have a choice. Maybe this is all... You know, built for us by the, the structural conditions that are that are producing a a kind of culture that doesn't give people any any sense of uh, fairness, and in in a and in a place where in a space where there's no fairness, then we turn to violence. I remember reading in Steven Pinker's great book on the decline of violence, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and he writes about how violence has declined over the historical uh, period in a lot of ways that are not obvious to us because we tend to say things are getting worse, and, and sometimes things are getting worse in various categories. Crime actually does seem to be getting a little bit worse, but was collapsing for a long mm -hmm. time, and, and he writes about how warfare, those kinds of violent deaths, really have decreased o over time in terms of how what percentage of humans oh, right. are going to die violently right, right? it yes our it wars used to be many our wars kill right. lots of people but they're actually killing a very small percentage yeah. of the population whereas you know if you go back to ancient times it's like most people are dying violent deaths like right. most of all people on earth uh, anyway, he writes that he thinks the decline of dueling, and yes, there was legislation and everything, but it, it tended to follow, I, I believe I'm, I'm quoting him accurately, dueling just became disfavored mm -hmm. or unpopular among like the next generation, like younger, yeah. more tolerant people were like, why do exactly. old people want to yeah. kill each other all the time? Right. Stop. That's not right. Lincoln cool. was ashamed of that to his dying day. Yeah. And, and it dogged him as every time he rose in politics. Hey, you're that guy that wasn't. You were in that duel. Yeah. Gross. 
So yeah, I'm, because I'm, the other, yeah, there was a politi- there was political and cultural opposition to it. So my my point being, I hope our next generation, uh, re, you know, resists this e- mm-hmm. even more. So this kind of thing, but actually, I, I'm I'm worried that they're not doing that, or at least that I see a certain number of activists who who do want to conflate the, as I talked about in my radar, the words actions uh, distinction, right. uh, and 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 yes, that that. That well, you should, on behalf of marginalized communities or whoever you're sympathetic to, you should wage violence, right. which is not a good idea. Bad. Yeah. Bad. Bad. All right. we, we, we had very much uh, agreeing, uh, thematically yeah. agreeing radars today. Our rising panel will join us next. Yesterday, President Joe Biden released his proposed $5.8 trillion budget for the fiscal year 2023. Notably, the budget contains a 10% boost to current defense spending, teeing up a more than $800 billion budget for the Pentagon next year. This $30 billion gift comes after Congress already padded the U.S. defense budget beyond what Biden even asked for this year. Biden directly addressed critics of the spending yesterday. Take a listen. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. The budget also sets aside a new $30 billion endowment for, quote, resources to support law enforcement, crime prevention, and community violence intervention in localities over the next decade. That's on top of $20.6 billion earmarked earmarked for discretionary spending by the DOJ on federal law enforcement and crime prevention in 2023, an 11% increase over this year's budget. Here's a throwback to Biden at the State of the Union earlier this month. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. Our rising panel joins us next to weigh in. Carly Cooperman is a Democratic pollster and CEO at Cho and Cooperman Research. And Malik Abdul is a Republican strategist. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. And so, Carly, what, what on earth is Joe Biden thinking here? Is there, is, there just, is there just no political upside in at least keeping the Pentagon budget flat after ending a war? Joe, Joe Biden is trying to pivot back to the, the center from a position um, where Democrats had told him that he was going too far to the left. And, and we've seen that the party felt like he was out of touch and out of step. And um, I think he's trying to pivot back to a more center place where he's acknowledging that, you know, violent crime is a top concern among voters and we need to... Um, spend money to to fund the police rather than defund the police, as said in the State of the Union. And in terms of the military spending, um, you know, the inter- with inflation, it's it's really that only, I think it was a 1.5% increase in terms of a, uh, spending, but he's also responding to the, the fact that there is funding needed for um, between the military, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's continued um, modernization of their own military too. 
Yeah, Malik, you know, what do you think specifically about, uh, you know, more resources for law enforcement? Is Biden, you know, just, is it politically? I think it's probably sincere as well, but, you know, totally rejecting the kind of far-left activist talk about the police, you know, in signaling that he wants to do this. Yeah, so the interesting thing about that, Robbie, is that this whole defund the police movement, it was never popular. Even if you go back and look in at, two, in, at polling in 2020, there were some conversations that we had because initially the whole idea was to defund the police. And I think there was an acknowledgement then that the defund portion was not popular. So then they tried to say that we can just simply reallocate money towards different things. So it's not surprising to me, especially considering not only what Joe Biden said during the campaign, but even at his State of the Union, that funding the police is something that he was definitely going to do. I don't think that Joe Biden would perform in this manner any um, any way different than any other president would have. Trump would have funded more for police, and Joe Biden is giving the what? But I think they now say an additional $2 billion over last year. So this really doesn't surprise me at all. Joe Biden is doing what he has to do, but also consistent with what the overwhelming majority of American people want. The expansion of police and military spending comes as federal COVID relief cash has run, is running out with HHS reimbursement of testing and treatment for uninsured COVID patients set to expire next month. Even the federal government's pandemic era universal meal program is set to hit the cutting room floor this summer. With those funds, the national school lunch program fed an average of 22.6 million children each school day in 2020. And Carly is what do you read into the administration and Democrats in Congress stepping back on on COVID funding in particular? Is there something are they feeling like the the issue has is uh, toxic for them at this point and they would just rather kind of move away from it? But I mean, how, what what's going to be the upshot of allowing all this funding to expire? I think that they're trying to respond to the the sentiments that we see voters are, are changing in terms of the priorities and what's most important to them. I mean, month after month in polling, we saw that um, addressing the coronavirus pandemic and everything that came along with it was a top issue for voters. And now between inflation and the rising cost of living, um, economic concerns generally, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we're seeing, and as well as the, the violent crime increasing continually, we're seeing that the top priorities of voters are shifting. And Biden seems to be trying to allocate the resources that he has in terms of spending to, to match where um, voters' concerns lie. Yeah, Malik, you know, it, the inflation issue is clearly going to be so important in the midterms it's very clear that this is like a top concern of of voters of uh, in, in survey results the administration has has tried to suggest that this you know the current conflict russia ukraine is responsible for for inflation and gas prices and things of that nature but you know i, I think that's not entirely persuasive to many people so so how does this does this budget uh, you know, make concerns about inflation uh, actually worse if, you know, if we're going to spend even more money? 
For those people who consider themselves fiscally responsible, and keep in mind that's something that changes according to who's actually in the White House, because everybody becomes a hawk um, when it's the other party in the White House. I think that there are going to be, there will be people who are concerned about it. But let's also keep in mind that with this budget, as with all pres president's budget, it's a very big number. Well. The thing is, is that Congress actually has to pass that. So we can be pretty much guaranteed that some of this spending will definitely not be in the final budget that Biden ultimately signs. But as far as our defense, any, it, we know defense is all the defense spending is always popular under any administration so that the Biden administration is given more money even considering what we're what's happening now with the Russia Ukraine invasion the thing is is that most of the American people are supportive of our military efforts so I'm not surprised that Biden is giving such a huge number again that probably won't be the number at the end but I think it's important what Biden is doing right now and I don't think that any president even a Donald Trump in office or any other president would perform differently as far as our defense spending any different than Biden himself. Yeah, and Carly, what is the relationship between these types of budgets, these announcements, and polling numbers that you, that you see? Does, is there, does, does it move the numbers or are people, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're the polling expert. Did you, do you see this actually translate into movement? Well, what I was going to say is that Right now, voters, we see in polling that voters are supportive of um, helping to defend Ukraine. And, you know, in terms of economic sanctions, they understand, they say now that they understand they're willing to have their gas prices go up at the expense of, um, you know, the sanctions that they're being waged against Russia. And so as there is support right now um, for helping Ukraine and clearly a focus on the international turmoil that we're seeing, this is a time where voters are going to be responsive to defense funding funding in a way that we might not have seen, you know, six or eight months ago. In terms of the implications we'll see on Biden's approval, I don't necessarily expect to see much of a change just by the announcement of the um, the budget. And, and we will see as things play out and as Congress negotiates what actually gets through. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We'll have more rising right after this. So President Trump has turned over his logs from January 6th. Gigantic gap. Yeah, seven hours it looked like. From 11.17 a.m. to 6.54 p.m. So the implication being there are missing records right this is calls we suspect he made during we, that we know that he spent that time watching television right we, so fair enough but we also know that uh he often is banging the phones while he's watching fox and cnn seeing how things are going so the idea that he spoke to nobody so it was about what one o'clock like ish when the capital was breached right so the idea that he spoke to nobody for the next five hours while that was happening Right, and we know, we know he was, we know that he was like texting with people at least, right? Right. Oh, certainly yeah. Ivanka, right? Yeah. Because Ivanka, like uh, Don Jr. didn't have the stones right. to actually text his father. He had right. to go through Mark Meadows. Right. Like Ivanka, or Ivanka came into the Oval Office a couple yeah. times. I'm not sure if she. Maybe he just had his phone off. She texted. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it on airplane. Just, Airplane didn't, mode. Didn't want to be disturbed watching airplane his mode. masterpiece play out. 
on yeah. on cable television. But yes, so and and it obviously harkens back to the Nixon the Nixon gap in the in the tape there. Do you this have any? Was ta- a gap of how long? Twenty one minutes. It was sixteen. A time period. It's right? some famous number that if we were a little bit older, we would like have memorized. We would have it memorized. I thought it was like eighteen minutes. minutes. Maybe it's less than thirty. Yeah, it, right. Yeah. It is, and it, but it was at a crucial moment, and right. it has fueled speculation for decades about what what was so because like the stuff that they released was damning enough for him to be prosecuted, uh, it, certainly to resign. So they're like, well, what was in there that was even worse than that? Wow, you can't even what, like what 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 crosses the bar? You're like, I'm deleting this. Like I can't even turn this over. All of this. And so this is coming the day after or a day or two after the the judge who's been overseeing all of these uh, cases of the January 6th defendants has said that uh, he likely, more likely than not, Trump committed crimes, uh, some type of a crime, in basically inciting these defendants to because the judge has seen so many cases come through that and he's seen so many of the defendants tell him. I thought that I was operating under instructions, lawful instructions from President Trump. And so he thinks that he has enough. And these are, these are defendants in the storming of the Capitol? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, they, and they, so many of them have said, look, all I was doing was what Trump told me to do. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't know that that does a lot for me because, of course, they're going to say that now. Um, I mean. Well, though, what else were they Doing. They didn't well, come up with the idea on their own. No, right? I think Trump is certainly morally guilty of, mm. of, cause, of, of stoking the fires that produced the riot. It, you know, did he specifically clearly call on them to do this exact thing? I mean, I've, you know, I've read his remarks at that speech numerous times, right. and I, I would say no. I think it was it's certainly reckless enough to disqualify him from office? Does it rise to the level of criminal incitement? I was not really persuaded. Maybe it does, but I was not really persuaded. And I, I think, of course, the defendants are now going to say, yes, it was, I mean, their, their attorneys are going to advise right. them to say that, to put the heat onto Trump. No, we were just following orders from Trump. Trump told us exactly to do this. Doesn't look to me like, in the speech he gave, that he literally said, you know, he said, we're going to march to the Capitol, we're going to show strength. We can't take back our country without tra- without strength. We're going to show my strength. He didn't Pence say we're strength. going to smash our way into the Capitol. And Did not say like, you're going to enter the Capitol at these junctures and you're going to disrupt, which is what I... It's not unless, good. I, right. like, it's not good. Right. Don't, unless we want to use but, the, the Haymarket Square, uh, if we want to use that precedent, you know, the, you know, where there was a... So anarchists and labor leaders threw a rally in Chicago, um, hundred plus years ago, and after, as the rally was ending, with, with most of the leaders having already left or at bars had gone home, uh, somebody and nobody knows this day who threw a bomb at police. It exploded, it killed some cops. The cops shot back and killed some people. They went up and rounded up all those speakers and executed them for inciting the violence. So. They had, and, they, and there was, there's no evidence that they had anything to do with it. Weren't even there at the time. Well, that, was probably so a bad, that was probably a bad call. It was a bad <laughs> call. Probably wrong. Bad call. But, but the Haymarket right. precedent would say that Trump's uh, guilty there. But well, sure. you're right. And it, uh, it'd also be 
wild to see him try to get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. Oh, <laughs> like, God. Like, good luck with that jury pool. I wonder how much of his legal jeopardy is connected to his political power. Like, he's in Georgia now drawing tiny crowds. His endorsed candidates are, uh, are, are flailing all over the place, whether it's Purdue or Mo Brooks, who he abandoned. Uh, if, if it seems like he no longer has a hold on the party, I wonder if it becomes more tenable for but, him to actually be prosecuted. But every time you think it's now okay and Republicans are going to start distancing themselves from Trump or speaking up against him, what happens every time you think that time has come, a few people do that and they get run out of the party. <laughs> they get Adam Kinzingered. They get everybody, Liz Cheney. Everybody I mean, and then they become yeah. insane themselves. But it, then they right. build their whole identity. They either build, then build their whole identity about get, being against Trump and the Republican Party by extension, or they, they get quieter. Yeah, they right. stop talking about it. So uh, Trump has to be a, I mean, I th- and I think Trump is kind of, he's an albatross he, hanging around their necks. Mm-hmm. He, he, he would go into a matchup against Biden. He might still win, but with serious uh, 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 drawbacks that a generic Republican wouldn't have, that Ron DeSantis wouldn't have, that you know, a Glenn Youngkin type wouldn't have, that really anyone with an R next to the name is not going to have. But can the party convince Trump of that? It's just not clear. And let's give the man his, uh, his due. He had a hole-in-one yesterday. Did you see this? <laughs> I, saw, I saw the statement. You've got to read uh, the statement. i got to read the, the statement. Tr- <laughs> Trump hole-in-one um, statement. Uh, this is going to be a treat for our audience. It was 181 yard. It was playing at 181. I think it was the seventh. Yeah, it was uh, seventh, have, seventh, hole, it seventh hole Trump International Golf Club. Where's this... Uh, I can't find it. Well, here. Let's see. Here's the New York Post. I want the whole... Oh, oh you got it for me? Mm-hmm. That'll get you partway there. <laughs> Many people are asking, so I'll give it to you now. It is 100% true. <laughs> I hit a five iron, which sailed magnificently into a rather strong wind with approximately five feet of cut, whereupon it bounced twice and then went clank into the hole. <laughs> a two-bounce hole in one. I... Oh, I won't tell you who won because I'm a very modest individual and you will say then I was bragging and I don't like people who brag. <laughs> this man put out a statement celebrating his hole-in-one and finished it with, I don't like to brag. Oh, our humble, beautiful, wonderful president. What kind of world is this that this man gets a hole-in-one? Former president. Not, I did not mean to suggest that he's currently our president because right. the election For, was former, not. Former president. Just That's... I'm not, I'm not even willing to say that this hole-in-one was clean. Like, was this his first shot or was this a mulligan? Uh, I, don't know if it, I don't know if YouTube will allow us to discuss whether the uh, hole-in-one was stolen or legitimate. I don't know. There is a hilarious book, I forget which pro golfer wrote it, who describes Trump as the most flagrant cheating golfer that he's ever, ever so. played with. Like, what'd you have? Oh, three. <laughs> not even th- what? You were three still in the woods. What are you talking about? You I've only golfed. Uh, I actually really like golf. I know the audience knows me to be like not really a sports person at all. I actually do like golf a lot. To w- watching uh, it. To watch. I I play, play it, it every now. I'm terrible. Absolutely terrible. It's like mini golf. <laughs> Actual golf. Terrible. 
But uh, how about a round with Trump? What? How about a round with Trump? Yeah, I, I think he'd I think he'd beat me even oh, without using any of the advantages. Oh yeah. Um, oh, he's a good, good putter. He's, he's a, a good very player. good putter. I I'll give I'll give him that. He's a, he's a good player. Yeah, is he? Yeah. yeah. Are you, do you I'm, golf at all? I'm okay. No. Not much. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, I'm a hacker. I like it. I like yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. twelve pack. Now we're talking. We'll have more rising right after this. Fighting is growing more gruesome as we enter month two of the Russia-Ukraine war. A disturbing video that began circulating on Sunday shows what appears to be members of the Ukrainian military beating Russian prisoners of war. Several captors were tied up, beaten, and it looks like shot in the legs. This looks to be in direct violation of the Geneva Conventions that were signed after World War II, which mandate that even prisoners of war must be treated humanely, especially prisoners of war. This video of the alleged mistreatment is expected to be investigated by both Ukraine and Russian officials. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov added that the soldiers who were conducting the mistreatment would be held accountable. The, uh, as they should. Yes, as they should. The Ukrainian, uh, a top Ukrainian official, responded uh, by saying that all prisoners need to be treated with respect, uh, but did not specifically reference, but it was clearly in reference to the emergence of this video. We're not, we're not playing it here, but it's, it's very gruesome stuff. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, it's a reminder, you know, don't, don't ever get too caught up in some hero na- uh, narrative about one side being good and one side being evil. Atrocities are committed by yeah. both sides in every war. And, and they shouldn't be, but and this is horrible. And this, this, we're entering into a period where everybody has iPhones or, some, or smartphones and also has the capacity to pass video around in a way that right. really hasn't existed previously. You, you could say that we've seen this with Syria, but even, you know, e- even since Syria, the, the kind of pro- proliferation and development of, of cameras, camera phones, has been uh, has been significant, although there's still plenty of violence going on in Syria. But what you started seeing there were uh, you know a trickle of videos of of war crimes being committed by both sides, and then a, and then a flood of them, and then and then it becomes almost numbing after a while. Uh, but yes, I, war has always been like this. You know, if if you go back and read real accounts, you know from even like Napoleonic, or you know, mm-hmm. you go back even further and further, like just absolutely vicious, gruesome things right. uh, being done to, to both sides. Well, in the old days, after you had people, it. you know, you, right, during Napoleonic era and before, you know, everybody lines up, shoots at each other, charges at each other, and then there are a bunch of people like gruesomely dying on the battlefield yeah. who then get like mercifully finished off, right? Well, That's yeah. the, it's awful. Right. And so, Right, and so but the New York Times, uh, you know, confirmed that this was an authentic video because there was, because you, you always do have to wonder as snippets of video are emerging whether or not. Yeah, it's, snippets it's of propaganda. video can be misleading. Video can inform us, but it can also mislead us. Think of all the times we've been tricked, not even in a war context, but by a quick video clip that seems to show one thing, and then greater context makes it show something else. So always got to be very careful. Right. But the New York Times did, yeah, did, right. did confirm. And it. and you can hear the. Uh, the, the Ukrainian soldiers saying in Russian to the to the Russian soldiers, we're basically, we're doing this because you've you've destroyed Kharkiv, and trying to figure out if there are Russian officers, and that's that's why it's so important to avoid wars. Yeah, because you're going to have revenge, and then revenge for the revenge, and revenge for the revenge. 
And these Russian soldiers were what? 18-year-old kids who got drafted, uh, probably. Right. Uh, and were t- a lot of them were told that they were going on a training exercise and didn't know that they were part of a war until they were in the war. And even if you're not persuaded by the moral case against doing something like this, you should be persuaded by the moral case, but even if you're not, tactically it is not good to torture or harm uh, uh, prisoners of war because you want to, you actually want the other side to surrender <laughs> en masse. Right. You want them to stop fighting. And if it, be- it becomes understood that prisoners are mm-hmm. not being treated well, that makes them fight, you know, if they're going to face... right awful execution or torture, then they're going to fight till the bitter end. You don't want the other side to fight to the bitter end. You want them to, you want giving up to look like a pretty appealing option. Right. Um, There's actually mass, in World War I, there was like mass surrendering of of armies because the the fighting in World War I was so miserable. The fight, you know, the trench warfare, blasting, you know, turning, reducing to ash, everything, it just... People living in these tunnels and you know these disease-ridden, dark, cramped yeah, tunnels, and, Hor- horrible. And, and it was such a stupid war because and it wasn't a war for. And they all had flu. They, right, they all, they all had the flu. It wasn't a war with this kind of state. Like there was not an evil. Like they didn't even feel that way about it. That there was some evil right. empire to, to defeat. Right. It was a minor territorial struggle, and so people would surrender. There was a lot of surrendering and. After you'd surrendered, they were actually treated pretty well in, in, in all sides of that war in most cases. Uh, it was not the case in World War II. In World War I, people mm-hmm. who actually who had surrendered were treated well, as long as you could get to the surrender point. You had to make right. it across the, the, the battle lines. Killed the chances of getting high. killed during the surrender phase were high. But or if right at the surrender phase. If you were accepted as a prisoner, um, you were treated pretty well. Yeah. But you're, you're very right. In fact, you, Ukraine has been kind of putting out the idea that if you surrender, you know, we're we'll going to pay you. We'll pay you. Right. We talked. We heard Brian Kaplan's idea. Yeah. Pay them to surrender. And there was a story of a uh, they've so they have been texting uh, Russian soldiers because they've you know, because Russians are so far overextended and they don't have encrypted access anymore. <laughs> the Ukra- Ukrainian military has been texting all these Russian soldiers with instructions of how to surrender. And there's this crazy video of, of one Russian soldier who uh, he was the only one left in his tank. And he made a deal. Like I think he sold the tank to the Ukrainians for like seventy five hundred dollars, and and then and got his freedom. Was you know or was was captured, gave himself up. And they met him at a certain place and made sure that he like laid down. It wasn't a trick, but it, it wasn't a trick. He actually sold them the tank. That's what you want. You imagine them you just like want... going through the phone book. Hello, are you yes. Anatoly Anastasovich? Yes, yes. <laughs> Would you like to surrender? Yeah, go to go to Fifth and Main. Drop your tank off. They literally did that. That's great. Which is such a better approach than shooting, peop- shooting people in the legs who are already bound. Yeah. Like alre- already with their hands behind their backs bound, and, and you're going to shoot them. Hor- 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 a lot of anti-violence content on the show today. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't hope, do violence, kids. I hope, I hope these Ukrainian soldiers are held accountable. Yeah, like they, absolutely. And, and they, sh- they, sh- they should be. They, sh- like they, should, they know who these people are. Like they, yeah. their, their commanders can figure this out. Yeah. Make an, you know, make an example of them and so that this doesn't happen. Absolutely. Or it happens less. It's going to keep happening. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? 
Well, this past week, California Governor Gavin Newsom unveiled an idiotic idea on how to relieve Californians from ridiculous gas prices. People in the Golden State are paying over six bucks a gallon. The Shell station down the street from me is currently at $6.39. Good thing so many of us have Priuses and Teslas, right? Well, unfortunately, many people have gas guzzlers. And worse yet, can't afford to live in the city center and need to drive an hour into work each way. How can they possibly afford this? Well, Gavin Newsom understands the hardship and has come up with a fantastic solution. He's going to divvy up $400 for every registered vehicle in the state. This direct relief is on top of the 10 plus billion dollars that we have distributed over the last year with the Golden State stimulus. So all told, close to $20 billion of direct tax relief. Now, this isn't based on household or per person or income or even commute distance. It's per car. They cap it at two cars per person. So if you and your wife happen to have two cars each, you'll get a whopping 1600 bucks. Even better, it won't matter if your cars are Teslas or Priuses, which require either zero or far less gasoline than the average vehicle. It won't even matter if you work from home and rarely drive. Own a car, get money. That's how this is going to work. Never mind the elderly on fixed incomes who no longer own a car. It's unfortunate their grocery bills are sky high due to the increase in trucking costs. If they only still owned a car, they could be getting $400. Many in the lower income class and even Uber drivers don't own their cars. They actually rent them on a per month basis. Nah, that's too bad. Under Newsom's plan, they won't be getting a dime. You must be a, the registered owner of the vehicle to collect the $400. And what about the eco-conscious who gave up their vehicles for public transit after the state government, including Newsom, encouraged it? What about those too poor to afford a car? They, too, are eating the cost of increased gas inflation, yet they get nothing. No car, no cash. That's how this works. It's unbelievable to think the state government, after spending so much time trying to encourage Californians to ditch their cars for greener solutions, is actually going to reward car ownership when times get tough. Does this actually make any sense? especially to so-called progressives. Is this making any sense at all? This is similar to the pandemic. Rather than progressives leveraging it for the thing they've claimed they've wanted the most, Medicare for all, progressives instead ignored their golden opportunity and advocated for hunkering down and waiting for a big pharma solution instead. How do people not see the irony in this? This is your moment. This is the time. When a pandemic hit, why wasn't it the progressive left's first instinct to protest for Medicare for all? Now that gas prices are through the roof, why aren't progressives demanding the state give incentives to use public transit or massive rebates on electric cars? Instead, the government advocates for big pharma and now in a gas emergency, the government is rewarding car ownership. It's bizarre, but it's beside the point. The point is, it's a ridiculously dumb idea to give $400 to people for each car they own, no matter if they never drive one of their cars or if their cars are all electric and don't even require gasoline. What kind of plan is this? Everyone is feeling the increase in gas prices. It's trickled into every aspect of our lives since nearly everything relies on transportation to get to us. Everyone, no matter how many cars they own, shares in this pain. Yet Newsom's idea is to give people a bunch of money for every car they own, as if I can drive more than one car at a time and need double the gas for some reason. It makes zero sense. And I'm scratching my head to figure out who this benefits. Is Newsom bought off by the car loan industry or something? Or is this just a genuinely bad idea he thought up on his own? What's even crazier is that the state Senate and Assembly actually came up with a better plan before Newsom came up with his. Their plan is to disperse $200 to each taxpayer and dependent with a cap cutting off the top 10% of earners in the state. Now, this makes way more sense to me. Gas prices soaring affect many aspects of our lives, not just filling up our Teslas, 
with imaginary gasoline. And what really drives me nuts about this is that this just looks like another one of those plans that ultimately ends up taking money away from the taxpayers, the hardworking class, and siphoning it up to the wealthy. I mean, people who own more than one car are going to be getting a bunch of money. It's based on that. I mean, that's just crazy. So households with a bunch of cars are going to get a bunch of money, you know, if they're registered to two to the mom, two to the dad, two to the, you know, and then each teen. I mean, this is just crazy. I but love this government so much. It's <laughs> so great. We don't want you to own cars anymore because it's bad for the environment. Uh, actually, scratch that. We're going to give you money per car you own for fun. Uh, yeah. Two, two uh, there's got to be a better pretty, plan. The right. two-car thing is pretty dumb. Yeah, it's, it sounds like giving everybody a check seems to be a better way to, to do it. It, it usually and, is. Yeah, good. Cut off the top 10%. Fine. Right. Um, and because everybody is facing higher prices. So even if you don't have a car, you're still facing some higher prices. Uh, But, you know, people who are commuting long distances, which California has no shortage of long commutes, are are definitely hurting. Like, and, you know, you can sit back and say, look, should have transit in the world should have transitioned to clean energy economy, gotten off these gas guzzlers. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't do anything for the people who are, are suffering right now. So I agree. You've got to do got to do something. The two car thing is a little bit weird. Is it, so is that what's going to happen? Like, is 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 California legislature just doing what Newsom tells them to? Or why don't they just uh, pass their version and send it to his desk? And yeah, so that's going to be the, the battle right now. You know, and Gavin Newsom's up for reelection this year. I know we just had the recall, but he's actually up for an actual reelection. And so. Um, you know, I don't. I, it's really bizarre that the Assembly and the Senate would come out with actually a decent plan, give everybody $200 plus per dependent. So that helps for things like groceries, right? And that helps the elderly. That helps everybody. It doesn't matter if you have a car or not. So it's really bizarre that he then felt like he needed to come out with this really odd plan that's like, no, we're going to do it per car. So if you've got more than one car, you're going to end up like really getting rich off of this. Even plenty of people who don't even drive to work anymore. I mean, the you know, the white working class are, are off. Many of them are still working from home. Their offices are maybe doing a once a week or twice a week thing. But the working class, the blue collar working class are still very much driving those cars. And a lot of them are single car households, uh, you know, or that, like I mentioned, they're renting their cars. A lot of people actually rent cars from people uh, rather than lease or own their own. And so I don't know why he would come up with this after the Senate and the Assembly already came up with a decent plan. It's so bizarre. Maybe it's like, oh, this will be a good plan. It only helps the rich, quite frankly. If you can own a car or multiple cars, you get more money. It's cash for clunkers, but you keep the car. Keep, keep, <laughs> the, keep the car. Even if it's a Tesla, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It really doesn't. You know? Is it, it's, it's not two per household. It's two per person. Two per person, right. So it's it's if your household has more than if you're in and you can maybe quickly go and register your cars right now i mean if you were going to do that well, uh I, so i, I yes. don't know if anybody who has that many cars is going to bother to do that for 400 bucks that's the thing about somebody that has that many cars they're like 400 dollars. not going yeah. to the dmv for that well but well. there are definitely plenty of wealthy people here in california that have two cars for you know the the mom the dad and then each teen gets a car and they wow. all will get 400 dollars per car wow. that house would rake in a ton of money Wild. I mean, it's just insane. Well, yeah. the big oil would rake in the money. Yeah. Like, it would, it would immediately be out the door. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, Incredible. Thank you, Kim. We appreciate it. We'll have more rising right after this. 
Presidents Putin and Zelensky may soon meet face to face following today's peace talks in Istanbul, according to officials in both administrations. Moscow will also begin to scale back military operations near Ukrainian capital Kiev, suggesting things may be finally turning a corner in the country's negotiations. Tensions are not all but quelled, however. A Russian oligarch and several Ukrainian peace negotiators say they were possible targets of poisoning. Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency also published the names and contact information of purported Russian foreign agents embedded throughout Europe. Please note this has not been confirmed, so we don't want to make too much of it yet. And in fact, the Ukrainian peace negotiators have denied that this happened. And right. there's a lot of speculation that this is Abramovich, the billionaire you know, owner of the Chelsea football team, and uh, you know, who has tried to ingratiate himself with the West over the last couple decades trying to garner sympathy. So that's that's one plausible explanation for where this story came from, which would jibe with the Ukrainians saying that, no, actually, the peace negotiators were not themselves poisoned. But the, but it is being reported. Bizarre. Yeah. bizarre. Really bizarre. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of, belie we know Russians poison. I mean, this is they kind do. of one of their tactics. <laughs> yes. They like their poison. So, you know, but what a bizarre situation. And, of course, when it is poison, it's like, how do you know who did it? Was it the government? Was it some other person? Was it uh, somebody from the West or Ukrainians yeah. plotting? And you know, it's, it's so difficult. With the polonium, you can usually be pretty sure, because like nobody has that. Like there's nowhere to there's nowhere to go get it. But yeah, it, this this one didn't they used to I'm use the uh, was I'm the ricin this one. bullet yeah, the, in the, the, the umbrella, umbrella, right? The old umbrella, yeah, 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 like actual Bond stuff. But yeah. I'm pre I'm skeptical of this one. I, you know, I I I'm I kind of lean towards the 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 like suspicion that Abramovich is is ginning this up in order to to win yeah. sympathy because you know he's 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 you know Ch the football team is being sanctioned and yeah, his whole his whole world is basically collapsing. Um, but what about the Kim? What do you think of the of the so far what we're hearing out of Istanbul and these peace talks? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a good thing, right? We would like to see an end to this conflict and fairly swiftly, um, sooner the better, absolutely. So, I, I you know, I, I, from looking at Russian sources, I've been trying to monitor both sides of this conflict, and they are reporting that well, they've they've accomplished a lot of what they were setting to accomplish, and that they've blown up. I mean, they gave a number of how many military installations and how much of the weapons they were able to to get rid of, but. Um, of course, those weapons could always be replenished and there's nothing, no one happier to do that than the military industrial complex. <laughs> He's going around saying, oh, we're going to make a bunch of money off this. Who was it that said that? Was it Raytheon, mm -hmm. uh, an executive them, yeah. that was saying, yeah. yeah, that was saying, oh, well, you know, this is, yeah, we're using the stockpile of weapons right now, but soon enough, we're going to have to replenish that stockpile to the NATO allies and we're going to be making a bunch of money off of that. So, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see. There's a lot of players involved in this, obviously, who have something to gain in continuing the war so you know there's so we'll see how you know what how this this pans out but obviously the people in ukraine the russians they don't want to continue this war so hopefully we get to some peace yeah the the, the problem is that both sides at this point you know there's so much more it feels like there's so much more i'm curious for your read on this so much more nationalism on both sides of the border than there was before the invasion and that right. uh, Russians have paid some... I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know. I, yeah. I mean you, Ukrainians have always had a pretty strong sense of nationalism, especially after Stalin. I mean, they, you know, they, they were, uh, t you know, massacred. So I think they 
they've always been, we want to be separate. We want to be Ukraine. We want to be, you know, I, I don't know if they've ever really lost that. Uh, I mean, obviously war does bring people together, right. but again, that's also a little bit difficult to know just because there's been conscripted right. service in this war. So it's hard to know, are they fighting because they want to keep Ukraine the way it is, or are they fighting because they're forced to? Tough to know. And there's a lot of what I think is true is there is now a lot of support for the Ukrainian government among the Ukrainian people. You know, Zelensky's approval is through the charts. Um, So there he you know, he has a uh, he's less constrained. And so I mean, he's constrained literally right now in terms of Ukraine's uh, position. But, he, you know, he's going to emerge from this, he's going to survive this, it seems, in a much, a much more popular position and, and thus kind of a more powerful position, which I think is interesting. I will say, I do think Russia's played this fairly smart. I don't know if that's the way you'd say that. Did I say that? Was that English? Uh, (laughs) Or am I speaking Russian now? Since I'm a Putin puppet after all, that's what, you know, Kim Kremlin, Kremlin Kim, that's what I get called online sometimes. Um, One thing I think Russia's done really well is made this where both sides can walk away winners. And I think that's really important when you are trying to end a conflict and you want to try to to build up and mend relations. Clearly, one of Russia's goals is to bring Ukraine back into the Russian world. Right. They're really upset that that Ukraine over the last eight years or so has been moving towards the West and asking for EU membership and wanting to be a part of NATO and, and cozying up to Western countries. And so Russia really wants to bring Ukraine back into the Russian family. Well, the way you do that is you allow them to walk away winners. And then you say, see, we both get to win on this. uh, And so now we can repair and rebuild. If you leave somebody a total loser, then it's very difficult to do that. Then they just feel like, well, now you've just beat me up. And uh, so they get to walk away somewhat winning because they could say, well, you still are your own state. We didn't take Ukraine. Um, You're you, you know, you still have Kiev. You still have your government. Now we need to be friends. You're my little brother. And I think that might be Russia's view on it. That's the I think that's that's the glass half full take. Right, The glass half empty take is both walk away losers because for Ukraine, substantial buildings were leveled. People were killed. People have fled Ukraine. Again, the country has been destroyed in large part. It'll be rebuilt, but so much destruction. So a loss, huge loss for Ukraine. And then also for Russia, I think even. It, it, it looks to me like it's not just propaganda, but in fact, a, a pretty objective um, analysis of their military performance that was that w- very much left something to be desired. So they, you know, they don't look, at, and, and maybe that would be the case for any army, you know, trying to do an occupation like this. Um, yeah. Maybe this is kind of, a, I think, a loss for 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 big nation states in general, thinking, oh yeah, I'll just. I'll just grab territory while no one's looking. It won't be a problem. No, I think this showed it, it would be a problem, uh, not, not just for Russia, but for China or for us if we, you know, if we tried some of our <laughs> some of our old tricks again. Um, so, so maybe in that way, it's a it's a you know it's a loss for them, but a, a positive for the for the um, for the philosophy of not invading people. <laughs> I think you know, if Russia were really trying to take Ukraine, they would have sent a lot more of their military in. They only sent in. How many hundreds of that, you know, 200,000 out of 600,000 that they've got. So, you know, that that that's where the analysis seems to be a little bit different than what Western sources are saying is that, oh, they were trying to take Ukraine. A lot of experts are saying that's not really true. Otherwise, they would have sent a lot more people in. They have a much larger military. Well, I'm worried at this point that 
the assumption that this these negotiations are going to work out it might might be overhyped. I feel like this might not be over yet. That that Russia might still have uh, broader designs. That they feel like there's there's still a way to to push forward uh, with with this war. And that this is just going to be a pause. I mean, I hope that I hope that's not true. And I think this is the, this is a time that the United States needs to come in and do everything it can to take this opportunity to end to end this war, whatever the whatever the goals are uh, of of Russia, and say whatever they are, like we need to end this right now because we don't. You know, it could it could continue to spiral. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the best way for America to do that is to stay out of it, and that includes stop arming them. I mean, the U.S. should be encouraging peace rather than saying we're just going to continue to encourage allowing you to fight this war by giving you a bunch of weapons, like I mentioned, that the military-industrial complex loves to supply. So, I, I, you know, I don't know if either side, I don't know if it's really in the, you know, if Russians really want the West involved, except to just back away, which well, has kind I'm of been sure their demand this entire time. Of course time, they, want, right? they want us yes. to back away, but they, I mean, right. they can... I mean, we yeah, we have a difference of opinion on this. I say <laughs> if they want us to stop saying, sending weapons, they can withdraw their forces. And then, yes, I'm all for not sending any more, any more weapons to Ukraine. Yeah, sounds but, good. Uh, let's, do, let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah, agreed. Tomorrow on Rising, by the way, Philadelphia-based reporter Jonathan Tamari will join us to discuss new polling out of Pennsylvania. And Brianna Joy Gray will be here along with our Rising panel to go over the top news of the day. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. There it is. Don't we look so cool? <laughs> subscribe and share our, podca- our podcast and also be sure to rate it. And uh, we will see you guys tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.